0: Hello SFIA Audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. This episode is brought to you by Skillshare. If aliens exist, there may come a day when we live and walk alongside them. And if the internet has taught us anything, fall in love with them too. Science fiction often shows us busy spaceports and metropolitan planets full of various aliens, probably most famously the hive of scum and villainy, the Moss Isley Cantina in the original Star Wars film. And in the most detail in the Babylon 5 series, where the titular space station is essentially the city in space where all the diplomats of a hundred races gather. Today we'll explore how likely that is, having many different aliens walking and living together, and how it might actually function if it were. Also, since this episode comes out on Valentine's Day, and such settings so often feature half-human, half-alien hybrids, I thought we'd explore the notion of falling in love and marrying an alien too. We have to start by stipulating the existence of alien civilizations, and an abundance of them, for the scenario of multi-species civilizations to exist, and channel regulars know that I'm generally skeptical that alien civilizations exist anywhere in our own galaxy, or even neighboring ones, so for today we will simply assume they are quite common. We will also explore both scenarios for faster light travel being possible, as it generally is in such science fiction, with lots of aliens, and a no-FTL scenario. It should however be noted that some of the issues discussed here may be present in a potential far future where different groups of human descendants had diverged greatly, either the old-fashioned way or more rapidly through technology. These divergent civilizations might be thought of as effectively alien, indeed given that common ancestry it fits the idea of aliens who share the humanoid form, basic human psychology, and ability to crossbreed quite well. So we will have that in the background for today as our plausible and justifiable scenario, and we will discuss it a bit more later on too. Absent that we get the big problem, how a hundred species all evolved under different conditions could ever have much in common in terms of environment, let alone shape and purpose. How could a bug-eyed alien who breathes methane ever live on the same world as a tentacular monster used to swimming around icy seas of liquid helium, let alone have anything in common with them? On the one hand, it is actually quite plausible that the only worlds that ever produce intelligent life that walks around, or slithers around, is one with an oxygen-rich atmosphere. Oxygen may have started off as a dangerous waste product in the early days of Earth life, but there is good reason to think that being able to breathe the stuff is the best way to develop high energy metabolisms able to fuel large organisms that move around quickly. We explored many other options in our episode Non-Carbon Based Life. But while other chemistries besides those focused on oxygen, carbon, and water are potentially possible, it does seem like our setup would be the most common, and certainly not rare. Thus it is decently plausible a multi-species trade port might go for an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere and those who can't handle that would wear spacesuits. suits. Nobody is likely to enjoy walking around with a breathing mask all day long, but as 2020 showed us, a lot of folks can get reasonably comfortable wearing masks regularly. We are also not too sensitive to oxygen concentration. So if the majority of species were adapted to half an atmosphere of pressure to two atmospheres of pressure, or oxygen concentrations of 10% to 30%, they likely all could hang out together. Neither oxygen nor nitrogen have any odor either, in their pure diatomic forms anyway. That's probably a big one to keep in mind too, (laughs) the smell. Humans notoriously have a bad sense of smell, which is not actually the case. We outperform dogs and pigs in some odor detection, But they beat us out in most areas, and it is easy to imagine aliens with very good senses of smell. Even ignoring that alien smells might be truly horrible on our noses and vice versa, an alien might find sharing common air horrifying simply for the odors, not just the concerns over spreading diseases. Humans on the other hand have very, very good vision, and we are quite detailed in our visual decorating. We might be above or below the alien norm but either way, our preferences for background visual decor might be nauseating to other aliens. I mean literally too, not just that one civilization might view another's artwork and decor as a crime against good taste. Just little things like lighting or some background equipment hum we do not barely notice might send an alien into seizures or their equivalent. On the flip side, a human might start bleeding from the ears and go deaf just walking around in what some alien species consider their equivalent of a noisy factory floor, or crowded social with folks chatting. Some species that operate on echolocation like bats might flat out die if exposed to such an environment, or even our own normal sound clutter, or at the very least be rendered effectively blind, whereas the echolocation used by several species of cetacean might kill us. Now something similar might apply to light and sound as would with oxygen, where we would expect almost every species to have arisen on oxygen-rich worlds. We can imagine a race that existed on echolocation or with enormous eyeballs because their world was so dark, but realistically you almost have to have that warm planet with photosynthesis to have abundant ecologies able to generate the diversity and large food chains we would anticipate existing for intelligent life to emerge from. Again, see our episode on non-carbon-based life for some alternative possibilities, but it would seem like worlds able to spawn civilizations would be those where both sunlight and noise were common. Wind makes noise, it knocks things over which make loud sounds by picking up energy through gravity and their impact, with amounts of sound that are based on shared physical laws common to us all, not world-specific. Cultures can diverge wildly, but physical laws are constant and universal so species coming from such worlds should be used to sunlight and loud noises. Nocturnal critters with eyeballs have eyelids, often multiple layers of them, in order to accommodate light changes. Bats do not do well in daylight, but they, like most nocturnal creatures, hardly explode when exposed to it, and it's not that uncommon to see bats during the day, or raccoons or any number of other nocturnal critters. It would seem likely that those more sensitive to light or sound, or certain frequencies of either, would just wear earplugs or the equivalent of sunglasses to assist with that if the shared environment went well beyond their natural habitat, and even sunscreen or vibration-dampening clothing if the ambient light or sound was physically rough on their skin, or made them nauseous. In the reverse, you probably wouldn't see many folks adapted to higher amounts of light, as wards much brighter than Earth would tend to be much hotter, So unless we're contemplating aliens who evolve inside a star, it wouldn't be likely you'd meet aliens used to vastly more light than us. It's also worth noting that human eyes are highly variable in their sensitivity. Noontime sunlight is a thousand times brighter than what we would consider a decently lit room, and more than a million times brighter than a moonless night. Aliens on planets with days and nights should be similarly adapted to variation in light. Maybe a species that developed on the sunny side of a tightly locked ward would have problems adapting to a darker environment like our own, but it's probably not a common ailment. On the other hand a lot of humans have light sensitivity issues to things like fluorescent light bulbs, and so lighting might be problematic in a shared environment. It is not too hard then to imagine a trade port where aliens would hold their nose against smells or wear a breathing mask to fix air composition issues, or wear earplugs or sunglasses to handle the environment while doing business and retreat to their ship or apartment when business was done, where the environment is more tailored to their needs. Or even neighborhoods of a large space station tailored to certain general conditions like the low oxygen high pressure regions low in a rotating habitat for residents of a thick atmosphere high gravity super-Earth or the methane-rich icy penthouses in the central region of the habitat for the aliens from larger methane-rich icy moons. We see examples of larger near habitats serving as home to broad multi-species societies in two popular science fiction works, the aforementioned titular Babylon 5 and the citadel in the game franchise Mass Effect, which is often thought to have been influenced by Babylon 5. The only reasonably practical way we know to simulate gravity on a space station is by rotation, and handily, such gravity varies with how far away you are from the central axis, strongest when farthest away and dropping to nothing at the axis itself. So you can vary your gravity in layers of such a station, or have it be more curved in shape like an egg instead of a cylinder, or have various specific radial nodes for more extreme conditions. As it is a space station, it's rather easy to isolate areas in terms of fluids, as you can build it with such sectioning of air and water in mind from the outset. If we're talking about being on a planet and buying someone's warehouse at the port to use as your own, you can not simply convert it from its normal oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere at about 300 kelvins to a pure hydrogen environment at 30 atmospheres of pressure, or some near-vacuum helium gas at 30 Kelvin. The warehouse simply wouldn't be built with expensive pressure and temperature insulation in mind. Truth be told, you probably couldn't do that to a room on a space station either unless it was built and internally insulated with that in mind, but that is more likely on a space station where things would tend to be built with airtight compartments. In shared environments it may be necessary to have some or all foods excluded. Foods that can safely be ingested by one species might be deadly to be in the presence of another, or even explosive in some environments, it is the nature of food to be energy rich after all and some species might have a beverage they drink in their native Antarctic conditions that explodes or vaporizes at room temperature. Worlds will vary in gravity, but it is unlikely most life forms couldn't temporarily handle lower gravity than they were naturally evolved in, and you also really would not expect to find life adapted to much more than twice normal Earth gravity. It is a popular notion in fiction to have some organism used to crushing gravity, but there are only three planets in our solar system with higher gravity than Earth, and those are Saturn, Neptune, and Jupiter. Gravity is only 7.5 and 13.7% heavier on Saturn and Neptune, respectively, though on Jupiter it's 153% heavier, so anything living in its atmosphere must be used to that gravity. Life from such a world is often envisioned as a giant floating gas bag, whale size or bigger, and thus might need a separate habitat just for size considerations. Folks might ask why it can't be smaller but keep in mind that while gravity on Jupiter might be very high, the density of the upper atmosphere is not, it's a good deal thinner than air. Thus something living there needs to be huge for it to be plausible they could have enough mass to have a brain. Jupiter has no meaningful surface, the atmosphere goes on for thousands of kilometers until hitting those pressure zones where conventional concepts of liquids and gases start getting vague. Prior to that, regardless of the pressure, which can be ridiculously high, You've got no method for staying afloat beyond buoyancy by some organism sucking in the raw atmosphere and filtering it for hydrogen, which would act as a weak lifting gas because of the presence of helium, argon, and various other gases in the air that are heavier than hydrogen. It is a weak lifting gas compared to even helium blimps on Earth, where you need whale-sized objects to lift people-sized masses with people-sized brains, hence the assumption such lifeforms must be giant bags of gas. It's even worse on the surface of stars, where gravity is higher but the so-called surface is just the place where the light is coming from. The photosphere of our Sun is a million times less dense than air, and a billion times less dense than water, so any sun-born life form would have to be even bigger. They'd also presumably find the temperatures of a shared habitat much too cold, unless they kept their living quarters in the station's fusion reactor. We will bypass discussing the habitats of theoretical organisms that might live on a neutron star for today. We'll also skip things living on the nominal surface of gas giants, which we assume to have rocky cores or metallic hydrogen layers. I don't know how life could develop in such places any more than inside stars, nor do I know what sort of clock tech would be needed to make a spacesuit that could handle visiting such an environment or vice versa. Though Ian M. Banks played with an ocean in his cultural series novel Accession for the gas giant-dwelling species known as the Affront. So the only remaining options for high-gravity lifeforms are super-Earths, and the thing about gravity is that if your densities remain the same, a planet needs to be 8 times more massive than Earth to have twice the surface gravity and it gets very dubious if such a world could have an ocean and sky and land like our own world does, nor would it be likely to have gravity from a higher density than Earth. Earth's core is largely iron and nickel, not the densest elements but the densest in common supply. I really don't see much of a case for worlds with complex life at even two gravities, let alone a spacefaring civilization, but I suspect they'd handle Earth gravity fine enough, and we will know better once we visit places with about half our gravity, like Mars. So you likely would not need your station to provide much more gravity than Earth normal, which could be on the lower levels, and higher is easy to do temperature and atmosphere controllers wouldn't be too problematic either. Size is an issue though. If two folks, one from Earth gravity and another from half-Earth gravity want to share a place, they don't necessarily need to pick a compromise value. In a big space station they can't be close, as gravity one force is at half the station radius of the others, but we could go smaller. Cylinder habitats can be any length you want, it is their radius that is the control factor for their structural strength. You can also build a cone shape instead of a cylinder, such a cone would have a microgravity on the inner floor near the tip, and full gravity at the edge near its base. Halfway up that cone you've got half gravity, and you do not need to build the whole cone of course. Now the cone only needs to be big enough to avoid causing rotational nausea to its inhabitants, and we can only speculate about what that would be for non-humans. Odds are good bigger organisms handle faster rotation worse than smaller ones, which is somewhat okay since you also need to build a bigger rotating habitat to accommodate them anyway, in part because gravity does drop with height, and if you're on the same scale as your rotating drum habitat, you might get sick from lower gravity on your head than feet. Some critter that is enormous and slow in nature, thus not needing a body used to rapid movements, might get very ill or even die from what we might find normal. I should not think you would need folks from wildly different gravity sharing a small cone habitat, though we did say we would discuss alien hybrids and romantic relationships today and that would be one of many challenges facing such an alien partnership. I think a space habitat that had to walk around many such variations of gravity would either go for that cone shape or some other shape not symmetric down its rotational axis, instead of just doing the mini layers. The latter approach is more compact but adds a lot of heating and structural strength issues that the cone habitat does not have. So that is probably the main structural approach, though you could also connect a lot of habitats together and have compromised zones for each stretching between. That would be far more probable in a no-FTL setup since you would expect to only have two species sharing a border or maybe three. Though that's assuming they don't share solar systems. One could easily imagine a galaxy shared by as many as five sentient species. Dividing the space not by pie slices or even stellar systems, but by individual bodies of preferred traits. One species like us inhabits the Earth-like bodies, another takes the furnace worlds like Venus, another the gas giants, another the icy moons, and another lives inside the stars. I've seen this in some science fiction franchises, but of course it only makes sense if the species decide to inefficiently live on the native celestial bodies not in the more likely scenario where they just build artificial megastructural habitats. Things like wormholes, at least the kind we see in shows like Stargate, make such planet-focused colonization possible, in which case an embassy planet might seem a likely approach to multi-species interaction, and I think there you might just link several planets together via wormhole. It depends on how easy the wormholes are to do and how compact. As we looked at in our Wormhorse episode, such technology isn't just good for getting from point A to point B, it lets you have a wormhole in your closet to a warehouse, or your fridge to an arctic storage vault. Now another issue facing multi-species habitats is disease control, and ironically this might be more dangerous than a technological civilization in some ways. Microorganisms and viruses often have difficulty jumping species, What makes a tree sick would not make a human sick, and an alien is even more removed from that genetically. While a virus needs to be tailored to match your DNA, a microbe doesn't care about your DNA at all, it just cares about the basic conditions it's growing in, either in your habitat or when using you as its habitat. Space travel by its nature makes quarantine easier. Folks doing it are likely to be comfortable with spacesuits, and could wear one even inside if they were concerned about a contagion or similar. Nor is an alien race likely to be that contagion, in the sense of being bacteria-sized. though you might have complex colony organisms whose individual components were bacteria. But we often consider cybernetic, chemical, or genetic alteration to allow more comfortable living in off-Earth environments, potentially a wide variety of environments, indeed that is the original meaning of the term cyborg, adapting people for off-Earth living and folks sharing a planet with some aliens might find that you or they or both had made some alterations to themselves to make living on that world easier, or living with those other people, or both. We talked near the beginning about how humans colonizing other worlds might seem rather alien after adapting, and aliens adapting to a similar world might be rather alien to their home world in much the same ways. Indeed they might use the exact same basic equipment for augmentation or environmental protection, some mask designed for filtering air to a higher concentration of oxygen before putting it down your lungs, is operating on the same principle even if the mask is designed for something more like a beak or a muzzle. Such being the case, a computer virus controlling its hardware probably works on all models, and concepts like techno-organic viruses, viruses that attack machinery instead of biology or software, might get all models too. Another thing to be asking is why folks live with aliens. Now we assume this is for trade or some border interaction, but the reality is that it would be very unlikely two alien species from alien ecologies who just happen to share a border would just happen to share anything like the same physiologies and psychologies, and they do not need to share a room or a planet to engage in trade or diplomacy. I don't think most people would want to spend time with aliens either, or vice versa, after the initial novelty when you are likely to find them physically revolting rather than interesting and vice versa. But people have varying and often strange tastes, and in empires of quadrillions you are likely to have many millions sharing any given taste, even the weird ones like wishing to emulate an alien species with a drastically different physical form. What's more, if you share a border with some species it is natural to have a greater interest in them. Indeed, it is quite likely you view them in a parental or child role, as if you are sharing a border with them, given that one of you is likely millions of years older as a civilization than the other, that this started out as a peaceful and potentially helpful relationship, like one gave technology to another and land grants on many wards or to many wards in their own empire. Essentially, the one civilization uplifted the other civilization or species. When you uplift some species you are definitely tampering with their society, even if it's only technological uplifting not physiological or neurological uplifting. Such being the case, you are arguably just creating a new sub-civilization in your own civilization, as we might expect if we uplifted cats, dogs, dolphins, and elephants. Mentioning those critters is a good reminder that we already cohabitate with different species, and that it is very likely we will create smarter versions of these creatures down the road as pets. There would obviously be an enormous market for cats and dogs of higher intelligence, maybe less so for one of human level intelligence, but that would be there too. Once you have time and genetic engineering in play, these things can progress. I think we should consider it more likely than not that within a century or two a lot of pets and households will have elevated intelligences to chimpanzee level or higher. Beyond that is more iffy in the sense that most of us would be uncomfortable with something human intelligent in our home but on the other hand, some folks are going to think that is a good idea, and that is likely to self-perpetuate. I would not approve of making things like dog people or cat people as some uplifted hybrid of our existing pets, but once they existed i disapprove even more of an attempt to get rid of them, and I suspect most would feel the same. Once you're down that road though, you will have an almost inevitable route to your civilization having several uplifted hybrid species in it, some living in your primary civilization, and others perhaps forming their own. Indeed you might have them sharing households. As I said, I think most of us would welcome smarter pets but not human intelligent ones, but that might be a sliding scale. One generation isn't comfortable with their pet actually carrying on conversations with them, but the next one grew up doing so as a kid and always regretted that their faithful Fido felt rather stupid once they were past 6 years old themselves. So when they had kids they got a smarter dog and their kids did the same, and their great-grandkids fought for uplifted species rights and land grants. We discuss some more concepts on this in our Future of Pets episode. This gives us our pathway for alien cohabitation though, and again the aliens of the future are very likely to have ancestors from Earth too, even if the chain is not direct because they were created not born. An artificial intelligence or organism that was so bioengineered that it doesn't even use DNA, like some silicon based life form we made, is still likely to regard Earth as its creator world, even if it has no common ancestors with anything from that world. They are likely to have some citizens who want to visit or immigrate to Earth as a result. Now making a smarter cat is very different from making a cat-person hybrid, and I suspect you would see not just both but many variations on them, like a cat or a dog that has slightly better paws for manipulating objects, but after a while the variations will vary even more, and you would have people born a cat-person decide they want to transition to either being a more cat or human form. With sufficient technology that becomes possible in a single generation. Technology-assisted reproduction need not be terrestrial but could be alien too. There's not a natural pathway for a human to have sex with an alien and have a child, unless it was something like they lay an egg in you like a wasp and it's born later. You won't get half-human hybrids from genuine aliens any more than you would get Ents like from the Lord of the Rings by marrying a tree, but technology alters the situation. It's quite likely someone who really wants to be an alien could simply have an android form made that they controlled remotely, or had their brain implanted into, and it might not be an android, but a tailored organism instead, like a clone. In these sorts of scenarios, where co-alien habitation involves cybernetics or bioforming to be more like the other, we can assume mostly the same environment for our parties. Indeed, they might be meeting in the middle. A pair of species that go to a ward that isn't their home might both alter to fit that new world or just as we might expect some humans to be xenophiles who want to live with and maybe even marry an alien, you would presumably have aliens who felt the same and gravitated to the same places, those border worlds. Realistically, an alien obsessed with humanity is likely to be more open to building a life together with a human obsessed with their own species. If both of them are determined to though, and their technology is up for it, they could create hybrid children even if it required building them in a lab from the ground floor up. Now we always need to remember that these aren't going to be Star Trek aliens, ones that look human except for some spray paint on their skin and latex on their head. Humanoid might be a common enough form, but presumably it isn't the only one and that leaves a lot of room for variation anyway, potentially horrifying variation. Even then though, it's never the physical differences that matter most, it's the cultural and psychological ones. Sharing a habitat with a giant squid creature who looks like Cthulhu's offspring is one thing, sharing a habitat with enlightened hive aliens who like to keep cute cuddly rabbits around so they can eat them alive or have children every month and only have the top 10% of those live to be past being a toddler is going to be a lot harder to adapt to than living with the slimy tentacles. Whether the aliens originated elsewhere in the galaxy or descendants of humans, genetically diversified by time and space, or uplifted critters or machine entities we made, Odds are good wherever you had clusters of two or more bordering each other, there would be enclaves where they made a go at living together. And probably always new ones too, as such enclaves would eventually become their own distinct societies if they lasted long enough, while those other clusters they came from continued to diversify and became several groups with shared origins, then eventually alien to each other too. One way or another though, in the future there will be aliens, and there will be folks who want to live with them and marry them. Speaking of marrying, I'd done various studio upgrades when I got married, including buying a DSLR camera with the intent of upgrading our monthly livestreams, and it helped with visual quality a lot. But my wife instantly stole the thing for non livestream days, as she enjoys photographing nature as a casual hobby, and the DSLR was a big upgrade on her phone's camera. If you ever tried doing photography beyond snapping quick pics with your phone, you know there's a lot more to it than just pointing and clicking, and there is a wonderful course on using DSLR cameras by Justin Bridges over on Skillshare, and he covers everything from the basics up to understanding all the terminology and practical applications, including how to buy new lenses. This year is a great chance to learn new skills, whether it's how to take photographs or how to cook or how to invest or start a business. Take advantage of these times to enhance yourself and your toolbox and skill set. Perhaps you're trying to adjust to working in a new environment or just looking to pick up some new skill or hobby, Skillshare has a course for it. Whether you're a beginner, a pro, a dabbler, or a master, Skillshare has thousands of classes on a wide variety of topics from experts to help you learn. Skillshare is an online learning community for creatives, where millions come together to take their next step in their creative journey, and members get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes, with hands-on projects and feedback from a community of millions. If you'd like to give it a try, the first 1,000 people to click the link in my episode description will get a free trial of Skillshare Premium so you can explore your creativity. Act now and start learning today. So today we wrapped up our Sci-Fi Sunday episode and next month we'll be having a look at exostellar civilizations living in the voids of space, rather than near stars, for our mid-month Sunday episode. We also have our monthly Livestream Q&A two Sundays from now to close out the month of February on Sunday, February 28th at 4pm Eastern Time. But before that we still have our regularly scheduled episodes and this Thursday we'll be looking at Orbital Bombardment as we return to our Space Warfare series. Then Thursday, February 25th, we will look at Colonizing Giant Stars. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel. If you'd like to help support future episodes, you can donate to us on Patreon or our website, IsaacArthur.net, which are linked in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums, where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. You can also follow us on iTunes, Soundcloud, or Spotify to get our audio-only versions of the show. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week!